Will you turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 1? Ruth chapter 1. And we want everybody to be able to look when we get to Ruth in Scripture. The guys have some Bibles, so get their attention and they'll get a Bible to you. And those Bibles are marked at Ruth 1. We're going to look at a number of other passages prior to getting to Ruth 1. But you can hold your finger there and we will get there in due course. Ruth chapter 1. One of my earliest and enduring memories of Christmas was our family's annual trip to a place called Fantasyland. I grew up in Ecorse, and I always add when I tell people that, I grew up in Ecorse and lived to tell about it. And Fantasyland was and is still located in Lincoln Park. I think it costs a dollar for kids to, to get in there, maybe three for adults. And it may have been completely free back in, in those days. And when you walk in, everything is moving. Everything is electronic, and there are figurines that are moving, doing stuff. So there are elves in their workshop. There's an angel swinging overhead. One of my favorites was a reindeer that had reading glasses on and was, was reading the, the Christmas story. And his head is just moving back and forth. And as a kid, I was just fascinated with this reading reindeer. And in the middle of all of this movement, there was a room into which you would go that was a nativity scene. And so as a kid, with having been sensitized now to all this movement, you go into this completely still, dark scene. Frankly, for a kid, it was a little creepy. I'm looking for something moving. And I'm ashamed to say that the one thing that I still remember was the one thing that moved in that nativity scene. They had the usual angels, and they had shepherds, and they had sheep, and other animals. But there was a dog. And there's this dog lying there. And the only thing moving in this entire scene is this dog lying there, sleeping. But they have the dog breathing, just electronically. And so I missed the entire nativity scene, just sta staring at that dog, breathing. Now I ask you, what do you think of when you think of Christmas? We all kinds of things that would flood to all of our minds. And indeed, that first Christmas meant that there were angels and shepherds and animals and there was Mary, and there was Joseph, and there was a baby. All of them gathered in Bethlehem. But more than all of that, God was there. God was there in that manger in Bethlehem. God was there as a baby. And that's why Joseph had been told to call the babe's name, yes, Jesus, and his name means God saves. But he had also been told, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when we look at a nativity, whether at Fantasyland or in a park or on someone's lawn in the neighborhood or on hanging on your Christmas tree or sitting on a table, whenever we look at that, what we should see is God in that manger. 
And our songwriters and our poets have struggled to express the wonder of that truth. And so one has said, fullness of God in helpless babe. We just sang a bit ago, being's source became to be. The source of our being has now come to be as a babe in Bethlehem. Another has said, eternity stepped in to time. The songwriter and singer Michael Card penned a song many years ago that looked at all of these events from the perspective of Joseph. What would Joseph be thinking? And the lyrics have Joseph saying, how could it be? This baby in my arms, sleeping now so peacefully. The Son of God, the angel said. How could it be? And he says, Lord, I know he's not my own, not of my flesh, not of my bone. And still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. And Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the son of God? You all are familiar with Charlie Brown's Christmas from 1965. And that famous scene of Linus finally giving clarity to all the madness about what Christmas is really to be about. And he steps onto the stage and in the spotlight and he has his blanket and he quotes the Christmas story from Luke 2. And he says this. I'm tempted to say it in Linus' voice, but I'll mess it up. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2 that today, in the town of David, a Savior is born. And we know that town to be Bethlehem. And so the question I want us to think about that, as we look at a nativity and we think about the fact that God is in that manger, The question I want us to consider is, how did God get to Bethlehem? How is it that God chose Bethlehem and that God executed a plan for God to come to that particular town? And I have an outline that we've inserted in your program for you, and I invite you to take a look at that. I want us to see together that That first Christmas involved a number of things that we don't often consider when we look at the babe in the manger. That first Christmas involved, first of all, a plan in eternity. That what we see on that first Christmas, and as we're going to see that we see in all of history, actually transpires because God has planned it in eternity past. And what we celebrate at Christmas came about because of God's plan in eternity. 
Bible says at the beginning of the book of Titus, Paul, who wrote it, introduces himself and says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So God promised that there would be some who would have faith. That, there, that word faith in the New Testament, you all know, is belief. There would be some who would come to believe. And as a result, they would be given eternal life. And Paul says that these people who would come to believe and thus be given eternal life were promised before the beginning of time, which raises a question. Promise to whom? To whom did God promise in eternity past when none of us were around that there would be people who would come and would believe and would in turn then have eternal life? To whom did God make this promise in eternity past? The same Paul who wrote those words in Titus chapter 1 says this in another book in Scripture that he wrote. He says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was, now notice, given us in Christ Jesus. And then he uses the exact same phrase used in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Before the beginning of time. So that first Christmas came about because of a plan in eternity. And that plan in eternity included a promise that was made by God the Father to Christ Jesus, God the Son. And God the Father, because of His eternal love for God the Son, promised to Him a people that would be His very own. And among the eternal counsels of the triune God. I know it's early in the morning. You can't wrap your mind around that. Neither can I. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conspired for our benefit to execute a plan in time in order for the Father to give to the Son this gift of love that would be His people. And if you are one of those people that has come to believe, then you are one of those people promised to the Son in eternity past. We're going to see a bit later that the Son would never reject any gift given by the Father because of His love for Him. And that the Son most definitely will execute the plan of the Father without fail to secure these people for His very own and to see them through to the end of for which they were called out of the world and to himself. That first Christmas involved a plan going all the way back to eternity past. It involved a second thing as well. It involved a a promise in the garden. A plan in eternity, but then God begins to execute that plan in time, in history. And so the Bible begins, in the beginning God created 
prior to the beginning of, of history, prior to the beginning of the creation of anything, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made the plan that they would execute in time. And then God creates time. And he creates the heavens and the earth. And most of you know the story. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is, is in them. And God created on the sixth day his crowning achievement of all creation, humanity made in his image to reflect him back to him. And God gave them very careful instructions about who he is and who they are and what his purpose for them is. He gave them one prohibition. You may eat of all of the trees in the garden, but of this tree in the midst of the garden you may not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. We know the sad story. They disobey God. They eat of the forbidden tree. They are physically still alive, but in the moment they partook of that forbidden fruit of that tree, they died. Because death in Scripture means separation. And in that moment, humanity, who was made for God and to bring glory to God and to reflect God back to Him, are now separated from God. And there are severe consequences now upon the created order that God pronounces in Genesis chapter 3, and upon the man and his role as a man, and on the woman and her role as a woman, and on the serpent for his part in executing this calamity. And in the midst of that, in Genesis chapter 3, this is what God says to the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. At the very beginning of human history, God tells us that he has a plan for redeeming, reclaiming what has been lost because of the disobedience of what we call the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. And he tells us that this plan to reclaim What he has made the world for, these people to be his very own, will involve the seed of the woman. That this is going to come through a member of the human race is going to come in the future that the serpent will hate and despise and seek to destroy, but he will only be able to strike his heel. But this one who will come will deal a crushing, fatal blow to the serpent. So God makes this promise very early on. And now in anticipation, as the Bible's story moves forward, we look for who this one is going to be and through whose lineage this one is going to come because we are told he's going to come through the seed of the woman. He's going to be part of the human race. Who will he be and from where will he come? And God begins to unfold that story in Scripture. And he gives us a third thing that the Bible tells us. That that first Christmas came about because of a plan in eternity and because of a promise in the garden, but also because of a people in history. A particular people in history. Genesis 3 promises that there is going to be one who will come. He will come into the human race 
He will come through the seed of the woman. Therefore, there is going to be a lineage through which he will come. But who's that going to be? And when is he going to come? And who, what will his identity be? This is why when you read in Scripture, you find God keeping track of genealogies. Because God said, this one is going to come through the seed of the woman. And then God identifies the particular line through whom he is going to come. And he does that in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls one named Abram. He calls him out of a town called Ur. It's in modern-day Iraq. The Bible tells us that the, the, the citizens of Ur were idolaters. They were stone worshipers. So God calls this one Abram, not because Abram was anything special, simply because God has a plan for this man. And he says, Abram, I want you to leave your country and go to a place that I will show you. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. He goes on to say, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Genesis 3.15 tells us that God's solution to this issue of sin, the, the plan by which He is going to call this people for His very own as a gift to the Son in carrying out the plan that He made in eternity past, it's going to come through the seed of the woman and particularly through the line of this one, Abraham, and his descendants. And as a result, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But Abram has no heir. He has no son from his own body. And so he says to God, how is this going to be? And God meets with Abram three chapters later in Genesis chapter 15. And the Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Abram, a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. So God has identified the line through whom this promised one, this chosen one, is going to come. It is going to be through Abraham and his descendants. So that first Christmas involved a plan in eternity, involved a promise in the garden. It involved a people now in history. It involved a people through whom God is going to execute His plan and He is going to set the table completely for just the right time for this promised one to enter the human race. And so God identifies through whom that's going to happen, through the line of Abraham. He keeps track through the genealogies in the first part of your Bible. And God had determined where this was going to happen as well. And that's the fourth thing that you see on that Christmas morning. A plan in eternity, a promise in the garden, a people in history, and also a place in Israel. A place in Israel. 
Now, I'd ask you to turn to Ruth chapter 1. The Bible tells us in verse 1 of Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, what are you to make of that line, in the days when the judges ruled? (laughs) Well, it happens that the book of Judges is the book immediately preceding the book of Ruth. And if you were to look at the last verse of the book of Judges, just on the page to your left, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25 says this, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And then Ruth starts with, In the days when the judges ruled. Here's what that means. These were lousy days. These were lawless, dark days. They were already so because of the lawlessness and the lack of authority to wisely guide the people. But then it's made all the worse because, verse 1 tells us, a famine came upon the land. And in keeping with the dictum that desperate times require desperate measures, a man named Elimelech took his wife and his two sons and they relocated from Israel to a place called Moab. Now, this was probably a really lousy idea. Even though they were in difficult times, and probably most of us would have done similar, if not exactly the same thing, nonetheless, it was an unwise move. Now, why? We need to know something about this place called Moab. The Bible tells us in its very first book, in chapter 19, how Moab came to be. It's a sordid story, and I won't go and read all the details, but here's what the Bible says in Genesis 19. Both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father, an incestuous relationship. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. And the younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites of today. Now, Elimelech, as an Israelite, should know this. And yet he takes his family to Moab. But the Bible also tells us what the descendants of Moab did and how God looked upon them. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Bible says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And so this is referring to the sojourn in the wilderness when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, led by Moses. And as they were in the wilderness for 40 days, as they needed and sought help from the Moabites, the Ammonites, it was not forthcoming. And so what transpires then as they make this understandable and yet foolish move. The Bible tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And what do they do? They do something God said as well not to do. They marry pagan women. And so the Bible says they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. 
And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion, the sons, also died. Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. So the writer is telling us this was a bad move with bad consequences. And now you have an elderly woman with her two daughters-in-law in a pagan land that they should not be in at all, and they are living in an absolutely patriarchal society. There's no Social Security benefits for this widow. How is she going to fend for herself? But God had mercy upon her. And verse 6 of chapter 1 says, When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from, from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So they go back. And as they get back, there is now the famine has ceased. God has blessed the land with food, but these are still women who are going to have to fend for themselves. How will they do that? In chapter 1 and verse 1, one of the daughters-in-law, Ruth, who remained with her mother-in-law on the journey, says this, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. Kind of a strange thing. She's going to go behind and, and pick up grain. This was the welfare system in Israel. In Israel, no one got a check for doing nothing. You had to do some work for it. And the work was to follow behind the harvesters. And whatever they left behind, those who were destitute could pick up for their own use. God also instructed them to round the corners of their field so that the grain left on the corners would also be left for those who were destitute. And this is what Ruth is taking advantage of. She's going to follow behind so that they can have, have food. And then in the middle of verse 3, here's what the Bible says. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from, of all places, Bethlehem. And he greets the harvesters, the Lord be with you. Now this is one of my favorite phrases in all of the Word of God. As it turned out. Some versions say, as it happened. Ah, but dear friends, it didn't just turn out. And it didn't just happen. This is all in execution of the eternal plan of God. This is all in fulfillment of the promise that God made in the garden. This is all part of the story that God is unfolding with His people in history. And now He is designating a place to which this promised one would come, none other than Bethlehem. As it turned out, Ruth meets a man named Boaz from Bethlehem. Ruth, this pagan girl from Moab. And the Bible goes on to tell us about their romance and ultimately about their marriage. And if you'll turn to the last chapter of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, 
and verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And notice verse 17. They named the son Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. You see, when Linus reads Luke chapter 2, and he says, today in the town of David. Why is Bethlehem the town of David? Because his great-great-grandfather and great-grandmother, Ruth and Boaz, were married and had a son in Bethlehem. And God continues to move his plan forward using the events of history and people in history to see it unfold. And that's why Luke chapter 2 begins this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Everyone went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So how does God get Mary and Joseph to this place that he has designated? He uses the decree of a pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus, that a census should be taken, this census for the purpose of ultimately taxing the people. And the method by which that will happen is that each one is to go to the town of his ancestry, And for Joseph, that turns out to be Bethlehem. So this one who would come has to come through this promised line. And God tells us that he continued protecting and proliferating that line in the story of the book of Ruth and through Ruth and Boaz and ultimately through David. And he's designated a place, Bethlehem. And God even uses a pagan emperor to get them to that location. And so Joseph is to go to Bethlehem because it's the town of David. And it's the town of David because it was the town of Boaz. And his great-grandfather is Boaz because this Moabite girl showed up there. And she showed up there because God had made a covenant with Abraham. And God had made a promise to Abraham. Because God had made a promise in the garden to fulfill the plan that he had made in eternity past. When you look at that manger, you're to see God there. And you're to see all that God has done to unfold his plan to redeem men and women as a gift from the Father to the Son. That's why the prophet Micah, as Pastor Matt read, could say, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And it adds that just to distinguish that this is the same Bethlehem of Ruth and Boaz, the town of David, because there is another town named Bethlehem, a smaller town. But though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I want to ask you to move forward in your Bible and look at your New Testament, the very first book in the very first chapter, Matthew chapter 1. And verse 1, 
a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God has been keeping track all the way in the first part of your Bible throughout the Old Testament. This one is going to come through the seed of the woman, particularly through the line of Abraham. God keeps track. He protects the line. He proliferates that line through Ruth and Boaz and those who would come after them. And now the New Testament begins a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. And if you look down in verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Through Joseph's line, Jesus has legal title to the Messiah. It is through Mary that he acquires his humanity. And in so doing, God fulfills his plan in eternity, his promise in the garden the purpose for which he called out a people in history. And he does it at the very place that he has designated in Israel, none other than Bethlehem. Now, what are the implications of all of that for you and me? Let me give you a couple. I have them for you in your outline. Remember this, dear friends. As you look at that manger and you see God there, you remember that that took place 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem because of the eternal plan, the promise, the people, and the place that God had designated. And when you do that, remember this. Everybody works for God. Caesar Augustus works for God. He doesn't know it. He doesn't want to work for God but he works for God. And every last person involved in this marvelous grand story was doing the bidding of Almighty God. And understand today that in whatever is going on in your life, whoever is involved, no matter their designs, no matter their schemes, ultimately they will be overruled by Almighty God because everybody works for God. I'm reminded of a story some of you have heard me tell of a woman who would pray to God, a destitute, poor woman, who would open her window every day and she would pray out loud to God, O Lord, supply for your servant. And there were some ornery boys who would hear her out on the street and they would make fun of her. And they would say, you crazy old woman, God's not going to give you any food. And finally they decided to play a trick on her. 
And they said, let's take some food to her door. Let's knock on the door. Let's run away. Let's see what she does. So they take some food. They knock on the door. They run. They hide behind some bushes to see what she'll say. She finds the food. She goes to the window, and she begins to praise God for supplying for her needs. The boys pop out of the bushes, and they say, you crazy old woman. God didn't bring that. We did. And then she says to them, the devil may have brought it, but God sent it. Because everybody works for God. Even those who don't know it and even those who don't want to. And here's another implication. Everybody works for God. And there's a sense in which God works for you. Now, when I say God works for you, let me hasten to say, it doesn't mean you're God's boss. (laughs) It doesn't mean you and I tell God what to do. I don't mean that. What I do mean is, the Bible teaches that God is at work on behalf of these people, that He has gifted to the Son, that He has promised to the Son. And everything that He is doing in history, He is doing for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And so God works on our behalf in all things, the good and the bad and the ugly. Hear this, even in our mistakes. It was a mistake to go to Boab. It was sin to marry pagan women. And yet in the midst of all of that, a sovereign God overrules and God works. Isn't that a precious promise for you and me? Jesus said this when he walked the earth. All that the Father gives me, remember the gift in eternity past. The Father to the Son, all the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I lose none of all that he has given me, but that I raise them up on the last day. In eternity past, the Father gave this gift of a people, you and me, to the Son. And Jesus is saying, I receive this gift gladly, and I protect this gift into eternity. They will be raised. They will be raised up on the last day. Now, we've seen the interaction of the Father and the Son, how that plays out in the Christmas story. I want to end by perhaps answering a question that may be on your mind if you're still awake. So where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? There's the Father and there's the Son, but then there's God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us, and you can just jot this down if you care to, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Romans 8, 26 through 28. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And then it says these words that most of us know. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Author Brian Chappell helpfully explains that passage this way. The world is hurtling toward the kingdom of God for which Jesus taught us to pray. And yet at the same time, the Holy Spirit groans with urgency and affection beyond our ability to muster, urging the Heavenly Father to fashion all things for the good of His children. 
the Spirit becomes Christ's instrument of intercession for us. He pleads for God to order the world for our eternal good. And because our triune God cannot deny Himself, the Father must respond to the near and dear cries of the Spirit. The Father makes all creation bow to our good in response to the pleading of the Spirit. At Christmas, remember this. You serve an absolutely sovereign God who's in control of all things. And He is doing all things for His glory and for our good. And so I say as your take-home truth in your outline, Christmas reminds us that God is involved in and in control of all things. This Jesus came to claim the people that the Father has promised to him. How do you know if you're one of those people? It's the people who come to believe in him. And you're invited to believe in him this Christmas season. Now, what do you need to believe? We need to realize who you are, that you're a sinner. Having broken God's law, Adam and Eve were separated from God. Everybody that comes into the world then is born into this world separated from God. And in order to be reconciled to God, Jesus has paid the price for our sin on the cross. So recognize He died on the cross for your sin and repent. That means no longer am I going to follow my way. God, I'm going to follow your way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life by believing who He is and what He did. And you acknowledge that to Him in prayer. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for this Christmas season. We thank you that it is yet again a demonstration of your sovereign control of your world. Lord, help us to remember that your control does not extend to just the big things, the incarnation, that first Christmas. But it means that you are executing every detail of history and every person within history works for you all for your glory and for the good of those to whom you have promised to Jesus, those that you have promised to the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to apply this then, this week, as we celebrate Christmas. Help us to see in that manger God and all that you have done to bring the blessed event about. And help us to see in our lives your sovereign, merciful, benevolent control. I pray that some in this group today are crying out from their heart to you, Lord Jesus, I believe you are God, and I believe you did for me what I could not do for myself. I ask you to, to rescue me, deliver me, give me a relationship with God. I pray that you'll begin your change project in, in them from the inside out for your glory and their good in Jesus' name. Amen.